Hello, friends, and welcome to our fifth week in our study of 1 Peter. This is, sadly, our last week together, and we will be focusing on the final chapter of 1 Peter, verses 6 through 11. So 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. And the theme for this week is persevere. And as I think later in the lecture will make clear, this theme is, is really easily connected with this passage from 1 Peter. In short, this passage contains the author's final exhortations to this community, to this community that's facing significant pressure and facing opposition from its wider religious, cultural, and political world. And uh, as has often been the case, the author once again offers perspective on suffering, uh, 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 sort of unlocks the true nature of a Christian's struggles, and provides uh, a new source of hope in the God of all grace or of every grace. As in my previous lectures, this lecture will have a very similar format. I'm going to read the passage first. And then I will do the, the sort of steps that I've done in previous lectures. I'll talk about how we've gotten here, the literary context between this passage and the previous passage. I'll say a few words about the overall shape of the passage in its entirety. And then I will uh, dig a little bit deeper into three areas of the passage and then provide some questions for further reflection. So let's start with a reading of 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety upon God, because God cares for you. Discipline yourselves, keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around you, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The immediate literary context of this passage is important, and uh, as is often the case with the lectionary, we've skipped a good part of the letter in between where we're now and what we studied last week, 1 Peter 3, 13 through 22. And so in chapter 4, we hear a lot of a lot more moral exhortations. In uh, 4, 1 through 6, we have exhortations that are really in relationship to outsiders. Uh, 1 Peter 4, 3 offers an apt summary of this paragraph. You have already spent enough time in doing what, what the Gentiles like to do. The author is saying you don't need to resort to that former lifestyle that used to characterize your way of living before you were baptized, before you joined the Christian community. 
The author uses stereotypical language to describe the Gentiles or the pagans. It's language that we see among other Jewish and Christian authors, as well as uh, ancient philosophers who were describing the sort of uninitiated masses, uh, the people who were controlled especially by their passions and by their appetites, whether those be appetites for power or for money or for sex or for food. Uh, and so very stereotypical language there. Then in verses 7 through 11, the exhortations are more inward focused. They're uh, all about doing things that maintain and nurture that Christian community. Things like love and hospitality and mutual service. Then in 4.12 through 19, the author returns to Christian suffering, a theme that we've seen throughout 1 Peter, uh, in, in many ways reminds us or, or even recalls what we studied last week in 1 Peter 3 about the blessings of suffering. Um, also says that it's really important to know there's a difference between suffering as a Christian, um, which again, I think says something about the context of the letter, that that would be the crime. The crime is one's Christian identity um, versus suffering as a murderer or a thief doing wrongdoing. Um, and in 419, there's this really important line about uh, let those suffering in accordance with God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while do, continuing to do good. And I think that this idea of uh, entrusting ourselves to God is a, is a real clear connecting point to what we'll be talking about in our passage this week. And then finally, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, we have something uh, similar to what uh, one New Testament scholar calls a congregational code, similar to the household code that I mentioned in, a, in our video lecture last week. The congregational code is how the, those who are elderly should treat those who are younger. And it's, it's not entirely clear um, that the elders is referring only to age, although the contrast with the younger suggested is. But the elders also appear to have something of a leadership role in the congregation um, based on what the author says about them shepherding those in under their care and caring for those under their, their care. So that's what leads up to our passage. And then what comes immediately after our passage in 512 through 14 is the end of the letter. It's the final uh, greetings and the final benediction. I want to say just a few words about the passage as a whole before sort of digging deeper into a couple of ideas and themes. This uh, passage, this paragraph, really is a compact paragraph. It's tight. It's relatively short. It's probably one of the shorter passages that we've talked about in our time together. And it, like elsewhere in the letter, it, there's, a, there's a real importance on the imperatives, um, the sense of commands. I would say that there are two major parts to our passage for this week. You have these final imperatives in verses 6 through 9. And then you have a statement of assurance based in God's character in verses 10 through 11. Our passage opens with a therefore, that word therefore, in the first sentence. And as I was taught in seminary, whenever you see a therefore in the, in the Bible, you should ask, why is it therefore? Or what is it therefore? What is it doing? And in this case, 
The therefore in, uh, in our verse 6 is building immediately on a quotation of Proverbs 3.34 that is found in 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Uh, Proverbs 3.34 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so verse 5 is something that is demanding mutual humility among all members of the congregation, all members of the community. And then in verse 6, there is an expansion of uh, a humility toward God, of, of putting one under, oneself under uh, what the author calls the mighty hand of God. If we focus for just a minute on the imperatives, we, we see the, the imperative to be humble in verse 6, the, the dual imperatives of being sober-minded and aware in verse 8, and then the imperative to resist the devil in verse 9. The final thing to note about this passage, this paragraph, is uh, the, the language around sober-mindedness, awareness, and resisting the devil is similar to what we see in James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Uh, and this has suggested that perhaps both authors are drawing on a, a similar tradition uh, around, uh, around watchfulness and around uh, the true nature of Christian opposition, uh, being not political figures, not local governing officials, but ultimately the devil uh, who is trying to thwart God's good purposes. For our deeper dive this week, I found it really easy to sort of tease out a couple of ideas that are related to the theme of persevere. And so I want to focus on three of these themes. The first is what the author says about humility and anxiety in verses six through seven. Then I want to talk about uh, this idea of alert discipline and resisting the devil in verses 8 through 9. And then I want to conclude with a reflection on uh, this description of the God of all grace or the God of every grace in verses 10 through 11. So to start, uh, this text in verses 6 through 7 about humility and anxiety uh, the, the first thing to say is about humility. Uh, this idea that the humble will be exalted is something of a biblical theme. Uh, we see it in Proverbs, but we also see it uh, in the Gospel of Luke, and certainly in Philippians 2.8, where it is describing uh, Jesus' own exaltation after he humbled himself uh, to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I think it's always good to ask, what do, what do we mean by humility? What is meant by humility? Um, I think that there are sometimes uh, interpretations of humility that are a little too extreme. Almost you get the sense that, you know, humans are like worthless ants under the powerful magnifying God, glass of God Almighty. It's almost as though humility is equivalent to self-negation. And I don't quite think that is what the Bible means by humility. One definition that I was given in college that has really stuck with me is that humility is really a sane estimate of one's self and one's value that is neither too high, but nor is it too low, right? So uh, sometimes we can say that we can put too much emphasis on not thinking too highly of ourselves, but we will always want to pair that with not thinking too lowly of ourselves. 
I think this passage, though, also adds another dimension to humility, and that is, uh, simply put, that God is God and I am not. This is popular uh, among many in the Reformed tradition, and especially the theologian Karl Barth, um, that we see that that the humility here is, is very much related to accepting God's will. And we see this idea of accepting God's will or things happening according to God's will throughout 1 Peter. Um, and really, the main idea is that suffering is in accordance with God's will. But, but beyond that, even accepting human institutions is a way of sort of being humble, of accepting the fact that God is in control. And so part of this exhortation to humility here is uh, about recognizing that God is in control even if it doesn't always seem like that is the case. And so uh, I think that this idea of humility as accepting the will of God uh, helps us understand the connection with anxiety a bit more clearly. So the main verb about being humble is the imperative. It's, it's, a, it's a force. It's, you know, do it this way, be this way. But the, the verb related to anxiety is a participle in Greek, and a participle always depends on the main verb. And so we might think that um, we, we, we would be saying, be humble, right? Humble, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and, and while doing so, cast your anxiety, right? So because you know that God is God, uh, you can give God those things that make you anxious. You can you can lay those things before God. But the author adds, I think, an important detail. It's not just that God is in control, that we should give God our anxieties, but it's also that God cares for us, that God knows us, that God loves us, that God is intimately involved with our life stories. Um, it's a great pairing, right? That that on the one hand, God is God and we are not. It's a good reminder about God's control, but it's balanced. It should always be balanced with God's intimate care and concern for humanity. The second thing I, I want to talk about is about alert discipline and resistance in verses 8 through 9. So I want to focus first on this discipline that is required. We see in verse 8 and 9 these two imperatives. The first in Greek is nipsite, which in the New Testament always refers to being sober. One Greek dictionary talks about this as being free from every form of mental and spiritual drunkenness, um, free from excess and passion and rashness and confusion. It has the idea of being well-balanced and self-controlled. The same Greek word is found in 1 Peter 4, 7 in the context of prayer. And I, if I was to paraphrase it or offer my own translation for you all, I would say um, the author seems to be saying, don't do anything that would numb your attention. Don't do anything that is going to um, sort of make you less aware. That's what I think the idea of, of soberness is here. And then that second imperative is the Greek word gregorsita, which is uh, means you know to stay awake, to be watchful, 
It reminds me of the instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples in the garden at the end of the Gospels. Stay awake and wait with me. Um, And so it really is a, a sense of being constantly ready to be on the alert. Um, and so I would I would say it's it's to eagerly pay attention to really sit there. So if if the first imperative is about avoiding anything that would would make us less aware that would that would sort of numb or dumb our attention, the the second exhortation is really about an, an active eagerly waiting. And so both of these verbs are often used in the New Testament. Um, in the context of uh, the end of days or the eschatological end uh, or eschatological context, um, so thinking about the return of Jesus or or paying attention to one's struggle in this life because of what is coming in the future, and that seems to be the case here as well. And the reason that the author is saying you need to be uh, 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 sober and uh, paying eager attention is because of the devil. And the devil is here described in, in really interesting and powerful ways. Um, the devil is described as an adversary in the first place. And um, the original idea of an adversary is a legal opponent. But here it probably has less to do with that legal setting and more to do with the fact that as an adversary, Uh, Satan or the devil is in opposition to God's plan and therefore causes human suffering, causes Christian suffering. The second word used to describe Satan is diabolos. It's the word we get from for our devil. Um, And it it originally referred to a slanderer or an accuser, but it really comes to uh, refer in the New Testament and in early Christian literature to the uh, the rebellious prince of evil who who is actively subverting the plan and the will of God. It's uh, that as the diabolos, Satan is um, the enemy of God's purposes, the originator of lying and deceit, and therefore is is sort of actively engaged in encountering what God is trying to do. And then the third uh, way that the devil is described is that of a lion. Uh, the, the author uses this metaphor of, of, of the devil as a lion. Uh, we see a similar usage of lion in the Hebrew Bible to describe the opponents of Israel, but here it's no uh, earthly or political enemies. It's, it's a supernatural spiritual enemy, the devil. Um, and uh, even in, in a world where people may not have been very familiar with lions in the wild, or they may not have had the National Geographic channel like you and I have, um, the, the metaphor would have been very understandable. There is this, there is a threat, there is this notion that lions are, are supreme hunters and that they're active, actively seeking their prey. And so this description, this language about the devil suggests that the true nature of Christian opposition is spiritual, not just political, not just cultural, not just religious, um, and that the conflict that they're engaged in is really um, a struggle between good and evil, between God's purposes and the power of evil. And so with all of that that is said to uh, said about the devil, 
Um, the author then says that here's the response. You need to resist the devil. You need to stand up. You need to uh, stand tall, we might say. Um, and this is exactly the opposite of what prey would do in relationship to a lion, a real lion, right? What is the, the nature of a sheep or, or a gazelle or another prey when they see a lion? They run, they bolt. And so in many ways, the author's exhortation is counterintuitive. The advice offered is to stay in place, to stay alert, to be humble, to be trusting, and to be sober and self-controlled. He says, hold fast to the faith. And I think it's really interesting and important that he also says, and look to others. Remember that the struggle you're facing is not unique and that you are in this together with others. The final thing I want to say a bit more about is the description of God in verses 10 through 11. Verse 10, I think, describes uh, the final outcome of the kind of life that the letter is desiring. It's the, it's the sort of carrot at the end of the race that is meant to motivate Christian behavior. Uh, it, it offers us this really important reminder that at the end of the day, God is the ultimate actor in the drama of salvation. It is God who is working and is willing to uh, make salvation a reality. And uh, that is so important. I've already mentioned that we can translate this word, uh, this description of God as either the God of all grace or the God of every grace. Either, is op either option is valid in the Greek. And if we, if we translate it as the God of every grace, this would imply that the God is the source of all good. Every manifestation of good is somehow a gift from God. It reminds me of, of something that the epistle of James says as well. There are uh, four verbs that are used to describe God's action taken on behalf of Christians, they're all spoken of in the future tense. So there's a sense that these are going to happen at some point in the future. And the four verbs are, uh, there's, there's some overlap in what the words mean, and there's also some specificity for each one. So the first is uh, the verb restore. God will restore you. Um, that is, uh, suggests that God will make you whole. God will take that which is out of joint uh, and, and make it whole again. The second is that God will support you. God will fix or establish you. God will, uh, you know, we might even think about uh, support here as, you know, uh, straps that would hold down a tent that, that God is, is going to uh, ensure that the, the winds of life won't overwhelm you. The third is that God will strengthen you to render strong, to maybe give you that energy drink or that, that protein uh, supplement, whatever you need to, to be strong, uh, to resist and to, to maintain the faith. And then fourth and finally, God will establish, God will ground the Christian community. This word for establish is uh, related to the, the word for the foundation of a building. And so that's the idea that, that God will root you. God will plant you. God will ensure that you have, have a deep and, and sure foundation. And all of these, as I mentioned before, have a future sense. 
And the first way to understand this is that these will all happen at the end of days, that these will all happen at the end of life, maybe for these Christians addressed by 1 Peter. Um, it, it reminds us that the, the, the suffering is only for a short period, as the author says in our passage, but these promises await. But I, I would also suggest that these, uh, each of these four verbs uh, might also be uh, something that we look for in our own lives in the, in the here and now. That our Christian struggle is not just about our paying attention. It's not just about us having faith. But it's also about us waiting on the God of every grace to, to strengthen and to restore and to support and to establish us in our lives uh, each and every day. Not just at the, at the end of days, but even in this day, here and now. Let me conclude with just a few questions for you to consider in your week ahead. The first is that the author offers several exhortations related to the theme of persevere, and I wonder which of these exhortations resonates most with you and why. The second is I encourage you to think of a time when you have cast your anxiety upon God and you have experienced God's loving care. What was the situation and what was that like? The third is, what do you make of the depiction of the devil in this passage? Is this all religious language of a bygone era that we need to sort of interpret in different ways? Or is there a resonance with you, a connection with your own understanding of how Satan is working to undermine God's good purposes? And my fourth question is, do you think God's actions on behalf of Christians, those actions of rest restoration, support, strength, and establishing, are, are these reserved only for the end times, or does God act in those ways in the present? Well, friends, this is my final lecture, and I'm sad that we won't have any more lectures together. It has been such a privilege to walk through 1 Peter with you through a few of these passages, I just pray that this has helped you engage 1 Peter more actively and more, more fully. And I really, really hope that it will encourage your future study of 1 Peter in the years to come. I wish you all the best in your studies. I wish you a happy summer and blessings in the work of ministry that you are called to do. Thanks again for the invitation to teach this class.